Good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Jeff Doyle, if you're new with us. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and we'll be continuing in our study in the book of Matthew. So if you want to turn to Matthew 27, that's where we're going to be today. Have you ever thought of yourself as being competitive? A show of hands, how many here today are competitive people? Okay, those of you that have your hands down just haven't been in the right position yet, but you're competitive. Um, see, I'm just, I want you to understand something. I want you to think about something with me as we begin our study today. What, what drives people in this? See, I was born and raised in a highly competitive family. My brother and I, still to this day, we get together, we're going to the basketball court. That's what we're doing, and we're going to get it on. Okay, he's only beat me a couple times. That's the way it works in our home. We didn't need much, and unfortunately, this is kind of getting passed down to the younger generation in our family as well. But one of the things that we didn't need much, we needed a pile of rocks and a target. And it was on, Right? But there was one question that always came up when we had this pile of rocks. And that was this. What are the rules? Okay, do you get three, do you get three throws at this thing? Are we trying to hit the center of it? Are we trying to break something? What's the goal? Who wins? That's really what we want to get down to. Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? Let's define the terms and then let's get it on. And what happens to you when the rules are defined? You get into the game and then somebody changes it up. Particularly the guy you're competing against then changes the rule midstream. That causes a fight at our house. But that just, that's not good. You don't change the rules midstream. Because that gets at something else in us. What is it? It's this inner design, something in us that longs for justice. And it's not just to change the rules in the middle of the game. You know, this really defines all American sports as well. I'm a soccer player. I played soccer in college. And it always used to frustrate me that the game could end in a tie. That's not just there needs to be a winner, there needs to be a loser. We played for two hours, something's got to, there's got to be an end to this thing. The beautiful thing about American sports is you don't quit playing till somebody wins or just people die. <laughs> we have this sense of justice in us that just needs, needs to be expressed I mean, think about what happens on sports talk radio around here when one of the local colleges loses a game on a bad last second call. Have you ever listened the next morning? It's crazy. People go nuts and they're calling. You got to, you know, if you got kids in the car, you got to turn it down at times because it, people go nuts over it. They want justice and that was not just. It's Unbelievable. It's the same thing we feel when the guilty get off on a judicial technicality. It's the same thing we feel when an innocent person is condemned. 
we throw up a flag and we say, foul. This can't be. We have been in a fascinating journey through the Gospel of Matthew. We've been walking through this and we've seen how Matthew takes these big chunks of time and stories, but then as we get closer and closer to the focal point of the gospel, it goes moment by moment. And he's focusing us in on the importance of where we are in the story, where we are in the life of Jesus. We are moments from him, him being crucified on the cross. And there's a ton going on. And we have witnessed Jesus sit down with his disciples and say, I'm going to be betrayed and crucified. And them not have a paradigm to understand that. And to make matters worse, he says, and not only is that going to happen, but one of you is going to betray me. Another one of you is going to deny me. And the rest of you are going to take off. You're going to abandon me. And last week we saw Jesus stand before the Sanhedrin, the supreme court of the Jewish culture, and be condemned as a blasphemer. And something inside us says, how can that be? How can the holy Son of God, the only innocent one, be condemned as a blasphemer. This cannot be taking, place, be taking place as something that God is behind. This has to have broken all the rules. What is going on? What is happening? So as we turn to Matthew 27, I want us to pray. And I want you to think with me. How do we look at this passage with new eyes? How do we see the travesty that's going on and the grace that comes from it? So let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. Lord Jesus, we desperately need you. We need the Holy Spirit to enlighten our hearts and our minds and our eyes that every say, everything we see, everything we think, and everything we hear today would be honoring and pleasing in your sight and would be transformative of us. For we desperately, desperately need to be transformed into your image. God, we ask that you would move. You would touch the innermost parts of our heart and our minds and sanctify us in ways that right now we can't even imagine. Come, Lord Jesus, and speak to us through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew chapter 27 when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders and the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. So we had this council, the Sanhedrin council in um, the chapter of 
chapter 26 last week. And now they meet in the morning because they need one more time together. They have a problem. They have a serious problem. There are rules to capital punishment. And though they have condemned him as a blasphemer, they are not allowed to take his life under Roman control. And to be honest with you, the Romans really don't care if he's a blasphemer or not. They're not real interested in Jewish religion. So they begin to scheme. So how can we get this taken care of? And what do they do? They use Jesus' words against him and they say, okay, he said he's the king of Jews. He's agreed with that. So let's condemn him as an insurrectionist, an enemy of Rome, and let's send him to Pilate as such. And so they bound him and they tie his arms behind his back and they lead him off. And as they do that, something amazing happens in the story. It says that when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. Jews believed that the shedding of innocent blood to be a horrendous sin. And as Judas watched the story play out in front of his face, he saw something. And he didn't like what he saw. And I am sure that Deuteronomy 27, 25 was ringing in his mind. Cursed be the one who takes a bribe and sheds innocent blood. Judas begins to feel the weight of his situation and what he has done. But I have a question for you. Do you think Judas really repented? You see, because verse 3 tells us that he changed his mind, that he felt remorse, that he wanted nothing to do with what he had already done. And in verse 4, he confesses, I have sinned. He tells us what he's done. He understands the, re the reality of his betrayal. It's become clear to him. These are positive movements in the right direction. He even took it one step further. He takes the silver back to them as restitution for the sin that he's committed. He wants to right the wrong. He changed his mind. He confessed his sin. He returned the money. But my question to you is, is that enough? 
Is that true repentance? Is it enough for you to just feel remorse, identify your sin, and make restitution? My fear is that's where most of us stay. Most of us, that's what we want to do. We want to just make sure that we, we've realized we've messed up. We just want to make it right. And we do whatever we can to make it right. The problem is this. Judas turns to everything else except for the one person who can grant him forgiveness. True repentance always has a moving toward God, to the one who can forgive. And he didn't do it. You see, God's word says that God gives grace and forgiveness, and he says it throughout the Bible, to those who will come to him with a repentant heart. Jeremiah 3, God calls his people. Those who have betrayed him, they have worshipped all different types of idols. They've left him. And he says, come to me. Return to me. Return to me. Come back to me. Acknowledge your guilt, your rebellion, your betrayal. And he says this. Return to me because I am merciful. And Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him to our God. For he will abundantly Pardon. There is a radical difference between a broken heart before God that is desperate for divine forgiveness and a despairing heart that just wants to make things right. Dale Bruner writes this, Both hearts hit bottom, but one realizes its powerlessness and balls other tries every desperate remedy available to human beings. Judas turned to the religious leaders. He repaid the silver. He was desperate. The reality that he was sinking into a hole that he could not dig himself out of was weighing on him. And he found no relief. No relief. The chief priests and the elders even said to him, this one's on you, buddy. This is yours. You handle it. That is so evil and so wicked. The religious leaders, particularly ones who are guilty themselves, showed their evil hearts. And they left this man to wallow in his sin. And he couldn't take it. He couldn't deal with it. Listen, friends. Listen to me clearly. 
You cannot handle your sin. You cannot. And the more you try to, and the more you try to dig yourself out, the deeper you will get, and the deeper hole you will go into. And at the end of that story, it's not good. Judas's end is not a good one. And the more you try to handle your sin, and try to somehow work it off, or make it right, the more you are in anguish and the more your soul will rot. Judas needed to come to the one he had betrayed. He needed Jesus. Without the forgiveness that Jesus provides, there was no hope. No hope for the despairing heart. No healing for the broken. None. No mercy for the wicked. All that was left was for Judas to try to find some relief. And he tried to do it in taking his own life. But there's no peace and there's no forgiveness for that. You see, Jesus heals a paralytic in Mark 2 for two reasons. Not just to show you that he can heal someone's legs and make them walk, which is miraculous. But he says in his own words, is it easier to do that or to tell this man his sins are forgiven? But so that you would know that the Son of God has authority here on earth to forgive sins, I say, take up your mat and walk. Jesus is God in the flesh. And he's the only one that can forgive you of your sin. He's the only one. You can't forgive yourself. You can't clean yourself up. You need healing and you need him to do it. So what happens to you? What happens to you when you stand in front of the mirror and you hear the still small voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you and saying, you the man, it's on you. You have sinned. You are guilty. What do you do? Where do you go? If you're like Judas, it's way overwhelming. And the weight of your guilt and shame is too much to bear. The realization that you're guilty of, of taking innocent blood and that you're cursed. You are justly condemned to die. But that's not the end of your story. It doesn't have to be. You don't have to end up like Judas. It doesn't have to be that way. So let's go further in the story and see where this thing ends up. First, the chief priest taking the pieces of silver, picking them up off the floor, said it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought them, bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. You know, Matthew's been 
constantly bringing us to these points where he's showing us the hypocrisy of these religious leaders time and time and time again. And here's just another one. You know, in their self-righteousness, they decide that this blood money can't be put back into the coffers of the temple. It's unclean. Somehow, miraculously, it was okay to withdraw that money to do this thing, but not to deposit it back in. Unbelievable. So what do they do? They decide to take this money and they buy a field for foreigners and strangers. So there will be a burial field for those who are traveling through the area and may pass away and can't be buried in other places. This is, so this is a social work that's good. They take this terrible money and they do something good with it, kind of. And I think in the midst of all of this, once again, you see another person, another group of people trying to make right the wrongs they have done. So they take unclean money to buy an unclean place for foreigners who are unclean people. But even in the midst of their sin, God is at work. For as we watch Christ's passion played out, moment by moment by moment, we see one thing. We see him. We see God's mercy in him. We see Christ becoming the blood money to purchase strangers and foreigners to make the unclean clean. This is why Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.13 that in Christ, we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And as the story progresses, we see in the next verses that Matthew ties us back to the words, to these actions as being under the words of the prophet. So he takes in verse 9 and 10 and he points us to Jeremiah 19 and, the, and the, phrase, the phrases of Zechariah 11. And he brings those in front of us for one thing. To be reminded that all of this, all the injustice, all those things are under the control of a sovereign God. In the fulfillment of God's story. Now, I don't know about you, but this is where that little justice gene for me just rises up. This doesn't sound just or right that evil could be. How, how is this working out? This story is all messed up. The rules have all changed. How can an innocent man be condemned? How can the religious leaders absolutely leave Judas out in the cold and be that hard-hearted and wicked, how, what is going on? How can this be true? But it's all in the fulfillment of God's grand story. And meanwhile, in the story, Matthew flashes us back to Jesus before Pontius Pilate as this story picks up speed 
and picks up pace. And we're, we're watching this unfold in front of us. The only just and holy one is being interrogated by a Roman governor. This is unbelievable. Jesus stands before him, and in verse 11, Pilate asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now remember, this is what would sentence him to death. If he claims to be a king who's a rival of the Roman Empire, he will be sentenced to death. And I think we can get from the feel of this and the other Gospels that Pilate's, not, Pilate's caught in the middle here. I don't think he thinks that Jesus is guilty. But if he claims to be this, then, then the path is laid out. And Jesus says this. It's as you say. And then he doesn't say anything else. He doesn't say anything else. He just stops. Now, at first read, once again, that's crazy. If you're in a murder trial, if your life's on the line, are you going to present a defense? I am. I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, where's the sword? Where's the whip, Jesus? Let's start, let's, let's do something. This is injustice at, in any way, shape, or form, any definition. But then, then what comes to my mind is Isaiah 53. Hundreds of years ago, the prophet Isaiah writes this. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like sheep that before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. Jesus is gladly, gladly submitting to the Father's will. And Pilate is amazed. He's saying, don't you hear? Can't you hear what they're, what they're saying about you? The charges that they're bringing against you. Can you not hear? That? Don't you understand your life is on the line? And the scripture tells us, that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom he wanted. And as this story picks this pace up, it gets more and more amazing. You see, they had... They had Barabbas already. A man who was guilty of what they were claiming Christ was guilty of. 
He was already in jail. He was notorious. He was an insurrectionist and a murderer, Mark tells us in chapter 15. You see, to, to Rome, Barabbas was a murderer and a terrorist. But to the Jews, to some in the crowd, he was Robin Hood. He was the one who was going to take action and deliver them from Roman captivity. He was the one that was going to undermine them. So Pilate, standing there, gives the people a choice. And I think in Pilate's mind, he probably thought, they're going to choose the innocent guy. This guy really hasn't done anything. This guy here, he's a convicted murderer. This is a good way for Pilate to get out of this. So he gives them the choice. And unbelievably, they say, give us Barabbas. How can that be? How can that possibly be? And right now, at the moment of Pilate's greatest stressful situation in his life, the decision he makes right now really sets a trajectory of his life from here on out. And he gets a text message from his wife. You know how this goes. You're in a really stressful situation and you, the decisions you're getting ready to make are really important. And, bzz, bzz. and the message comes in and his wife says, stop now. Don't have anything to do with this guy. He's innocent. And I have suffered in a dream over it. Do not have anything to do with him. Can you see what Matthew's doing? He's making us realize the innocence of Jesus through Judas's testimony and now through Mrs. P. Jesus is innocent. He's completely innocent. But... Pilate totally disregards his clear warning from his wife. Just to mention, guys, fatal error. Fatal error. Um, those of you whose wives are at the women's retreat this weekend, if your wife comes to you and says in prayer and in a dream, I heard this, that, and, and she gives you a warning, you should take heed. You should remember Pilate. Don't be dumb. Don't be dumb. But in that moment, the crowd begins to fester even more. They become a shouting mob. And he, and Pilate looks to them and says, What shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they said, Let him be crucified. And now the third testimony of Jesus' innocence 
Even Pilate says, why, what evil has he done? Matthew wants to make it very clear to us. There's an innocent man on trial and justice is not being served. Now, as we get to the end of this, there's a couple things I want you to think about. And if you've been sleeping up to this point, this is the important piece. Okay, so if you'll just look this way, kind of right, I know it's kind of dark in here a little bit, but you know, it's warm, you're ready for your Sunday meal, I realize, but listen to me, because this is the point. This is the great truth for us today. This is it. We are all Barabbas. You, me, each and every one of us. That's who we are. We're all notorious sinners. Did you know you're famous? Did you know you're famous? That in the sight of heaven, you are a famous sinner, an insurrectionist, and you have done more damage to the kingdom of God than you probably have done good. Do you realize that? You are a convicted murderer and a leader of sinners. You and me, everyone in this room, notorious, famous. So I have a couple questions. Ones that I've had to wrestle with hard this week. Who should be given freedom and life? And who in this story should be condemned? What is justice? The notorious, murdering, subversive rebel being set free? Or Jesus, who is called the Christ, the Messiah? the Savior of the world. Be very careful how you answer that question. Very, very careful. Because if Jesus is set free, then you are condemned to die. Justly. They had no idea, the crowd, what they were doing. They had no idea. Because in verse 25, we see them say, His blood be on us and on our children. They had no idea. They had no clue what God was doing in his narrative story. But here's what God was doing. The just was getting ready to die for the unjust. 1 Peter 3, 18 tells us, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. God gave his only begotten Son for the Barabbases of the world. He gave his innocent, perfect life for a self-consumed crowd, 
that a murderous rebel would go free. Romans 3 tells us he became the propitiation for our sins so that he might be just and the justifier. Folks, this is grace. You want a picture of grace? This is grace. And grace turns you and I's ideas and inward understandings of justice on its head. Absolutely turns them on their head. The cry of crucify him in the sight of forgiveness and grace becomes a cry of freedom. For the sinner who has no way to free himself. No way to free himself from his sin guilt and his just condemnation. Jesus is being led off to the cross as a sheep to the slaughter. The perfect sacrifice for you and I's sin. You see... Because of his sacrifice, you go from being a Judas to a Barabbas, from a guilty sinner without hope to a convicted killer set free. Unbelievable. Astounding. So the question is, why would you try to right every wrong you've done. Try to work off sin or to make things right when you can't do it. Christ says, come to me. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take upon, take upon you my yoke, my burden. He's going to carry ours. You see, it's only when we behold Jesus clearly that we see him as the Lamb of God who would come and take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist proclaimed in, when he saw Jesus coming to him, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You can't do it. And the beauty of that is that by grace you're saved. That Jesus proclaimed the night before he was to be betrayed. He prayed over a loaf of bread. He broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat and remember. Remember what I've done for you. Remember. And he took a cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And every time you drink of it, you should remember. Remember, remember, remember. As you come to the table, and this table is open to anyone who has given their life to Christ, who is walking 
under his authority. Not perfect, but you are trusting in him to forgive you of your sins. You are trusting in his work and his work alone for the forgiveness of your sins. But if you've never done that, I want to challenge you today. Stop digging. Take your sins to the one who can bear them. Take them to the one that can forgive you. Take them to the one who can forgive your sin and give you life and life eternal. For those of you that have done that, remember, you're Barabbas. You are rightfully convicted but set free by the work of Jesus on his cross. And one day, one day, he will return. You see, some believe that the crosses were already constructed and that Barabbas was supposed to die between the two thieves. And Jesus took his place. And he took yours too. So as you pray and as I pray, confess your sins to Jesus, the one who can save you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that through the power of your spirit you would show us forgiveness. Help us, Lord Jesus, in our time of need. Forgive us where we have failed you. Forgive us where we have betrayed you. And help us to cling to nothing but you and your work in our stead. That you took all the punishment that we were supposed to that we might be set free. May grace have its work in us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.